from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Dr. Dwight Allen. Dr. Allen devoted his life to educational reform and innovation. He is the former dean of education at the University of Massachusetts. He is co-author with Bill Cosby of the book American Schools, The $100 Billion Challenge. I started the interview by asking Dr. Allen where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up on the San Francisco Peninsula in California. I was raised in a a Baha'i household. I had a very protected life in that it never occurred to me as a child to like someone or not like someone based on their race. And so that was a, a lesson that I had to learn the hard way later on. I attended Baha'i classes during the entirety of my childhood. I remember very poignantly one time we uh, were collecting resources to build the Mother House of Worship in the West in Chicago, and, and my little nickels and dimes are somewhere in that concrete quartz amalgam, (laughs) and I could never go and visit that house of worship without having a a tinge of of remembrance of a a wonderful childhood opportunity that when people said it would never come again, uh, we never had the opportunity to understand that then as we do now. Dwight, what do you mean by the Mother Temple of the West? The first Baha'i house of worship was in Ishkabad, Russia. Uh, in the early 20th century. The Mother Temple of the West is the first house of worship built in the Western Hemisphere in Wilmette, Illinois, uh, on the shore of Lake Michigan, and uh, represents the efforts of the Baha'i community worldwide to construct this house of worship, which was dedicated in 1953 and given as a gift from the Baha'i community to the world. Now, Dwight, could you give me a little bit of background on your parents, who they are, how did they run into the Baha'i faith, and that kind of thing? Well, my mother uh, was studying to be a Methodist missionary in San Francisco in the mid-1920s. In the course of that study, she had a course on comparative religion, and the minister teaching that course would introduce a new religion every week, and Monday to Thursday would describe the religion and then on Friday say why it was wrong. And my mother got a little upset with his Friday lectures, so she started visiting churches and temples and synagogues all over San Francisco, and she felt she found the Spirit of God everywhere. And in the course of that investigation, uh, one of her friends, who was not a Baha'i, suggested that she attend the Baha'i meeting, and she became a Baha'i the very first night that she heard of the Baha'i faith and its message of progressive revelation that 
all of the religions of the world were God's authentic message to humanity at different times and different civilizations. My father became a Baha'i when I was about five years old. You were in the San Francisco area throughout elementary school, junior high school, and yes, high school? Yes, I, I went to elementary school in Burlingame, California. We moved a few miles up the road to Millbrae and went to Burlingame High School still and, and uh, graduated from Burlingame High School and then went to Stanford University where I did my bachelor's, master's, and doctorate and then stayed on the faculty for nine years. What did you do at Stanford while you were on the faculty? On the faculty, I was director of teacher education at Stanford and uh, had a number of grants in educational reform, which defined my lifelong professional orientation to educational reform. After being at Stanford for nine years and becoming a tenured professor, which was my lifelong ambition, the following year I left to become Dean of Education at the University of Massachusetts. And I guess becoming Dean of an educational college gave you some opportunity that you saw that outweighed staying at Stanford where you had tenure. Well, see, I had no interest in moving at all. Uh, One of my patrons, a man by the name of Chuck Kettering, who had funded a number of my projects at Stanford, said, at least go take a look at that job at UMass because I think that they may be interested in doing some of the things you're interested in. And and so not to disappoint a patron, I at least agreed to go and take a look. But I was convinced that I didn't want to move. And so on the plane flying back, I made a list of the things that would be required before I would be interested and made a very absurd list that they would have to give me 15 new faculty positions and that I could bring my administrative uh, assistant with me at their expense and uh, have a nine-month appointment as a dean rather than 12 months and on and on. And I gave my list to the provost and I said, you know, I really would not be interested in coming here and, uh, unless these kinds of things were agreed to. And he looked over the list and looked up over his glasses and said, and what else would you like? <laughs> and so I was kind of hoisted by my own petard and found myself going to UMass. And I must say that the prophet fulfilled all of his promises to me and, uh, uh, and then some. It was a good move. You trade off different kinds of things. I've often wondered what would my professional life have been like if I'd stayed at Stanford, but uh, life is filled with choices. You mentioned there were things that you wanted to do while you were at Stanford. What were some of those things that you wanted to do? Well, I had already invented a teacher training technique called micro-teaching, and that was becoming popular and was spreading all over the world. I had completed a, a program called Flexible Scheduling, where I was generating school schedules by computer uh, at a time when that was considered virtually impossible. One of the leading textbooks at the time, said that computer scheduling was theoretically impossible, and that book was published about the same time that our uh, successful program was launched. I've always felt that education has not kept up with the times, and between then and now, we still face the same fundamental problems in education, namely that we proceed from false premises, I had a good crack at trying to 
changed those at UMass, and we made some progress. But the regression line captured things, and things kind of fell back to the regression line. Some of those obsolete premises are things like the premise that information is scarce and that expert teachers and professors have to share this scarce information with their students. And the reality is that we're buried under mounds of information, and the task of education is to make sense out of mountains of information and sort through them and prioritize them and decide how to give them credibility and all those kinds of things. And that problem remains in education to this day. The role of the teacher has to be rethought. Every teacher is a learner, and every learner is a teacher, and we don't still train teachers how to learn from their students. The structure of education is obsolete in terms of thinking in terms of precise segments and degrees and ending points when we should think of education as a as an ongoing process that lasts a lifetime. So all of these kinds of things are are going to change over time. In the book that I wrote with Bill Cosby, we use the metaphor that educational reform, the way it is being done now, is like stirring frosting on the cake when we really need to bake a new cake. So tell me about the book that you wrote with Bill Cosby. The title of the book is American Schools, the $100 billion challenge. And we advanced the premise that if you wanted to really do a, a, a really uh, fundamental job of educational reform, that it would require a minimum of $100 billion a year of new resources. And we identified 18 projects that would be examples of the kinds of things that would represent the investigation into significant educational reform. And we were just getting traction with the book, and we had appeared on the Today Show and Morning Edition and all those good things when 9-11 came along and no one any longer was interested in uh, funding educational reform. So the effort fell off the charts at that point. But the ideas are still there and still equally important and still equally unaddressed. Let's go back to your interest in micro-teaching in Stanford. Can you explain to us what that concept is? Micro-teaching is sort of the educational equivalent of a link trainer for pilots where they uh, use a simulated uh, environment to train for extreme events. We noticed that there was really no safe place for teachers to practice things. The clinical uh, opportunities for practice for teachers were really the classroom and and with real kids there with their real learning in jeopardy if, it, if things went horribly wrong. And so this did not encourage teachers to really try anything very far away from the norm. So we constructed an experimental setting. Uh, initially, these were five or six kids that were brought in for a very brief lesson, hence the micro, micro being a small number of students and micro being short, single-element lessons that originally were 15 minutes. Later on, they were reduced to five minutes. And this five-minute lesson taught the five kids uh, would be, at that time, videotaped. I owned the first portable videotape machine in the world. (laughs) 
It was a Mactronics portable recorder, and portable is a relative term. It was 70 pounds. <laughs> we would record the lesson and then play that back for the teachers and let them see themselves and give them critiques, and then they would reteach the same lesson to a different group of students to see if they could improve. That version of micro-teaching, which was very technology-intensive and quite expensive, nonetheless became very popular and was used in about half of the, of the teacher training programs in the United States for a number of years. But its complexity made it fairly unsustainable, and so gradually it fell from favor. In the 1990s, why we reinvented a, a new version of micro-teaching, much simpler, which involves teachers teaching their peers and getting feedback from their peers with or without technology. And that version of micro-teaching now has a respectable following uh, worldwide, but never regained the central popularity that the original micro-teaching enjoyed. And why do you think that's the case? Well, partly it's my fault in the sense that I didn't pay enough attention to marketing it and staying with it and making the presentations at national conferences that would keep it in the forefront of people's attention. One of the weaknesses of my professional career has been that I have so many interests that have gone in so many different directions that I haven't personally taken the time or had the discipline to follow up on them. And so uh, unless someone else takes up the cause why it tends not to uh, gain the critical mass necessary. That's been true for several of the seminal things that I have developed over a career. I think it's very common for those that are very creative thinkers are not necessarily the same people that have the talent to actually implement it or, or take the idea forward. It takes a team of people with different talents, the creative aspect of it, and then the implementation aspect of it. It's not always the same person that has the same set of skills. I think that's correct. We were developing that team at the University of Massachusetts, but uh, I took a sabbatical to go to uh, uh, Lesotho to help found the teacher training college there. While I was on sabbatical, why a huge scandal erupted at the school, and I couldn't come back at the time, so I resigned as dean rather than leave my post in Lesotho, so the entire school of education kind of imploded in terms of its very uh, avant-garde characteristics. So, uh, like so many experiments, why uh, it doesn't take very much to bring them down. It takes a lot to sustain them. Why don't you tell me about what was the makeup of your UMass team? Well, when I arrived at UMass, one of my first actions as dean was to discontinue every course, degree, program, and requirement in the school effective 18 months later, and that we would spend the next 18 months figuring out what to replace the current programs with. And the theory was not that everything that was there was bad, but anything that was there at present would be put back following the same criteria as anything innovative would face in terms of its initial adoption. With that reform agenda in mind, 
I was able to recruit 34 new faculty to join that effort at the beginning of that new 18-month period, 91 doctoral students whose major program was to design and implement a new school of education, and we closed the school for a week and went out to Colorado and planned what the new college of education would be like and spent that next year planning what the new school would look like and then uh, implemented a completely new series of programs the following year. There's one faculty member that I'd like you to talk a little bit about, and that is Dr. Daniel Jordan. If you could say a few words about him and his role in your team and some of the remembrances that you have of him. Well, he was one of the uh, charter members of our team. He came from a background of psychology and cognitive learning. His major research initiative was a program called the ANISA program, and he was challenging some of the fundamental psychological premises of the teaching-learning environment. His efforts were one of about 15 different major initiatives of the school, and Dan had a number of very, very creative people that came and joined him in that effort, and they were trying to figure out how to completely redefine the teaching learning environment in accordance with fundamental principles of psychology. Dan was very much influenced by the theories of Jung. It was a wonderful and a very substantial effort, made a a large impact. It was brought to an untimely end with his death. He was unfortunately murdered in his transit from New Haven in Connecticut, is what I understand. Uh, Yes. At the time, he had left UMass and was a faculty member in San Diego. Did you know Dan from Stanford? No. I met Dan through our common Baha'i activities. How long were you at UMass? I went to UMass in 1968, and I was there until 1978 with two years out as Chief Technical Advisor at UNESCO for the Teacher Training College in Lesotho. I don't know if you feel it's appropriate to talk about what happened at UMass that you felt you needed to terminate your role as dean there. Actually, it was very simple. The school was in crisis. Looking back over it, if I were to do it again, when the province asked me to come back because the school was in crisis, I was on sabbatical, I should have simply said no. But uh, I cared enough about what was going on and felt responsibility for the team that was there. I came back, and it was a horribly politicized kind of thing. We had made many enemies during the time of our major reform efforts, and these enemies were people, some I'm sure may have had questionable motivations, but many of them were uh, simply very concerned that the kinds of things that we were proposing genuinely uh, were uh, not beneficial as educational alternatives. I mean, we were challenging things like Alvin Toffler's concept of durational expectancy. I 
I had a number of students who we uh, enrolled in a doctoral program at the beginning of their undergraduate junior year, analogous to the three-year Bachelor of Law program that uh, allowed lawyers to start their first two years of law school training as undergraduates. That was part of the model. We uh, had discontinued many of the formal courses and put a lot of emphasis on uh, individual study, and we had eliminated almost all of the requirements for at the graduate level and uh, allowed students to negotiate an individual program of study with their advisors. And all of these things were very controversial. So there were people kind of waiting in the tall grass for an excuse to challenge these things. And the opportunity came when allegations of fiscal mismanagement came up and set off an investigation which made tremendous headlines at the time when it all boiled down after initial allegations that millions of dollars were missing and on and on and on. One assistant professor pleaded nolo contendere to the misuse of $1,800 in funds, and that was it. But the damage was done, and the bloom was off the rose. And in the process of that, the the province wanted me to come back and help resolve the mess. I couldn't leave because I had promised UNESCO that I would open the college, the teacher training college there, on a very accelerated schedule. And at the time the scandal broke, we were about two months from opening, and it would have been irresponsible to leave them in the lurch. I should have just left the school in the hands of the acting dean for the balance of my sabbatical, but the provost in goodwill convinced me that it would be better if I resigned as deans because it was very hard for a, an acting dean to carry on the school under those circumstances. Then there were more political machinations where some of the senior officials of the university, other than the provost, who remained good to his word, double-crossed me and uh, then made accusations, which later on turned out to be unfounded, but the damage had been done. Where did life take you after UMass and your UNESCO effort at Lesotho? Well, I came back and uh, stayed on the faculty as professor for a couple of years. I was trying to decide whether I wanted to go on to another administrative position. I was looking, actually, at positions as provost of different universities when uh, Old Dominion University offered me an endowed chair. Again, I wasn't terribly interested in going to Old Dominion, but... They gave me uh, pretty much of a blank check and allowed me to be absent up to one month each semester for my international consulting and other kinds of things, allowed me to teach whatever I wanted to teach, and gave me all sorts of support. So I decided to go there, and I remained at ODU for 30 years. You said you did international consulting while you were at Old Dominion. Can you describe that for us? Well, among other things, I was the chief technical advisor for the largest United Nations development program in educational reform in China in its various incarnations for a period of 15 years. 
I've made a total of 44 visits to China as a result of working on that program and its successors. I was also very active in uh, promoting micro-teaching and other reforms, consulting in Europe and Africa and India. At the same time, I was doing a lot of traveling for the Baha'i Faith as well. Those 30 years went by very quickly and uh, very productively. What would you say your mark has been on Old Dominion in your 30-year career? Perhaps the most visible and the most spectacular was the last four years that I was there. I developed and chaired uh, the committee that presented the uh, a required course for about uh, more than 2,000 freshmen. It was the largest course ever taught at ODU and perhaps the largest single course any time in American university history. We had up to 2,500 students uh, meeting in the basketball pavilion once a week to learn about environmental education. And then I had a staff of 35 master's and doctoral students that led sections of 25 students each for two discussion sessions a week. And we had a multidisciplinary faculty of 10 faculty from all six colleges of the university. Each college uh, offered one of the units in the course. So it was a very thoroughly multidisciplinary course. It was very controversial at the university. It was a rather substantial and I think, uh, important effort. Uh, Some of the other things that I did while I was there, uh, the last three years that I was at the university, I I had my students write their own textbook. Uh, We abandoned the use of the standard textbook, and they wrote their own textbook, and we got some research evidence that showed that they spent more time reading their own textbook than students spent reading the standard textbook, and they enjoyed it more and learned more from it. That was a pretty exciting experimental effort. And then there were other smaller things along the way that were interesting. Uh, For a period of several years, I moved out of the College of Education into the College of Arts and Letters. As eminent professor of arts and letters with an emphasis on the study of the future, and uh, taught future studies courses. I also had fun uh, teaching freshman English for a number of years. That was a a kind of an unusual uh, enterprise in that I had no formal training in English other than freshman English at Stanford. But freshman English is a course that students hate, and English teachers don't like to teach it, or English professors, they prefer to teach advanced literature classes. And so you had a course that everyone agrees is important, but the teachers don't like to teach it and the students don't like to take it. So uh, I thought it would be interesting to see if I could teach freshman English composition in a way that the students would like it and I would like it and they'd learn a lot of English. Uh, It worked out very well, and we were very successful in presenting a course that was very popular with students. The average student reported that their writing speed was improved by about 50% as a result of the one semester's course and their activities there. Another uh, major effort was the uh, Act Now project. 
at the Brunswick County Schools where uh, we were able to uh, introduce one of the poorest school districts in the state to some new technologies and provide internships for ODU students to go down there and help stabilize their faculty and present an in-service master's program for their faculty on-site that reduced the faculty turnover at Brunswick County from, oh, up to 50, about almost 50% a year down to about 8% a year. So we stabilized the, the faculty and made a big difference in the education of the kids in that rural setting. Another program was the Prime program with the Norfolk Public Schools, where we developed a paid internship and introduced a number of innovative practices, including something called 2 plus 2, which was a, an evaluation protocol for the classroom that went on to be used in Namibia and China and other places. Actually, it's developed in Namibia and then exported re-imported back to the United States and over to China, where eventually it was used for 375,000 teachers in Yunnan province in, in southwestern China. So those are a few of the highlights. All right. So I have some questions in regarding to those things. In regards to your freshman English class, what were some of the techniques that you used to keep it interesting? Well, the only textbook I used was a, a children's book called Anno's Journey, which is a book that has, there are very few words in the book, and it's mostly a series of visual puzzles that tell a variety of stories. And so I used the, the book Anno's Journey as a metaphor for teaching people how to read a book and how to analyze writing and stories and things like that. Uh, we used a lot of peer editing. They did twice as much writing for me as they did for other classes. Uh, every paper that they wrote had three versions. The first draft, which was peer edited, uh, and as a result of the peer editing, they produced a second draft, and the second draft was read by me or my teaching assistant. And then, uh, based on that feedback, they had to write a final draft, and the research evidence is that you, you improve your writing much more by re revising and rewriting than you do just writing the initial, the initial piece. So by giving kids lots of feedback and lots of opportunities to revise their writing and to learn to write quickly and to not spend so much time on any one draft, why they tended to enjoy that much more and became much more open to both giving and receiving feedback on their writing. And then in regards to the, the ACT project, what were some of the techniques that you used to stabilize the faculty turnover? Well, the, the biggest thing that we did was to provide them uh, a master's degree training program where they would get a free master's degree which they would complete in three years. So if they left any time during the time of their degree study, they would have to reimburse the tuition to the school district. And then they had a, an obligation to stay for three years after finishing the master's program. 
uh, which would give them a substantial bump in salary, of course, and uh, a higher level of status. And so anyone who participated in that master's program pretty much made a six-year commitment to the school district, and we had about 70% of the faculty of the school district enrolled in the master's program. And then finally, in this prime 2 plus 2 project, can you describe a little bit more what that was about? Well, it was about comprehensive reform, and uh, uh, we had teacher interns that served in the schools. We had the schools revising their program and their peer feedback. The 2 plus 2 evaluation replaced the standard teacher appraisal or standard teacher evaluations in the district. The teachers would observe each other weekly. As a result of each visit, would give two compliments and two suggestions for improvement. So teachers would have 40 or 50 compliments and 40 or 50 suggestions for improvement over the course of a semester. They would then select the compliments that they valued the most and the suggestions that they felt were most useful in terms of helping them uh, improve their professional practice. And they would submit that to the administrator saying, here is how I propose to improve my practice this next semester based on the feedback I've gotten this semester. And the school administrator would sign off on that, and that would become their, if you will, their professional development plan for the following semester. And then at the end of that semester, why they were able to report whether they'd been successful in meeting the goals that they had set for themselves. So that was a very substantial staff development program. There were also curricular components of the PRIME program where we were trying to revise the uh, or to give students more individual support and, and what we call pre-mediation rather than remediation and would provide students with as much real-time remediation as possible so that instead of falling way behind and then having to repeat a whole class that we would catch the errors early and remediate them and allow them to go forward in a much more pleasant kinds of context. It was our contention that students don't drop out of school, they're kind of pushed out of school. If you are a student who's had a lack of success for several years running, why you're not going to find school a very hospitable place to be and the first chance you have to leave, you will. If you can have your efforts redefined in such a way that you can achieve some success, then you're likely to, more, much more likely to stick around and see yourself as part of the larger picture. So, again, we made some very substantial progress in the prime project and uh, at a group of schools that uh, were very committed to that program and and made a lot of progress based on it. Now, Dwight, what is your opinion of the No Child Left Behind program? Well, I think that the No Child Left Behind program had absolutely the right objectives, namely No Child Left Behind, and to add a higher level of accountability for everybody in the system. I think it had absolutely horrible methodology in terms of the way it sought to achieve that result. And uh, I think it was probably necessary to go through that process. You don't 
necessarily get things right the first time. The idea of accountability is not going away, even though the methods by which that accountability will be achieved will hopefully be changed substantially in some of the newer efforts. But I still think that No Child Left Behind and the successor efforts currently under discussion don't start far enough back at the root problems of the system there. They're not still challenging some of the issues of the surfeit of information that we face and the changing roles of teachers. I think we still are having trouble figuring out what the the real core curriculum of the 21st century is. We still have uh, way too much emphasis on some priority subjects and don't pay enough attention to the arts or to health and, and nutrition and physical education. So uh, I'm still unhappy that we're not engaged in a more fundamental effort of educational reform. And the question is, how long will we have to go before we fall far enough that we, are, we see that we really have to do something different? The charter schools have clearly demonstrated that you can educate these kids if you have the right kind of environment, but that still is solving the problem for a very small percentage of the kids, and the major system is still left untouched. Going back to your childhood here, when did you realize that you wanted to be an educator and you wanted education to be your career? Well, I wanted to be a math professor ever since I can remember. And so I arrived at Stanford University thoroughly convinced that I was going to be a math professor and then uh, found that the very narrow theoretical base of mathematics that it quickly became wasn't really my cup of tea. And then I went on for a semester to be a, a major in in pre-med because I thought I might want to be a psychiatrist. And then I decided that really I'd rather be a teacher and majored in history and humanities, then balanced that with a certificate in math education as well. But as soon as I got my doctorate, I became a generalist in educational reform. Has the Baha'i faith influenced what you've done in the field of education? I don't think I could have done any of what I've done without the Baha'i faith as an inspiration and guide for it because it defined a number of starting points. I mean, at UMass, one of the things that we didn't get around to talking about is that the uh, number one priority of the School of Education was combating institutional racism. And we were very serious about that, and we admitted about uh, one-third of the graduates of the doctoral program at UMass during the 10 years that I was associated with the program were of minority background in a state that at that time had less than 10% minority in the population. So we were very, very serious about trying to deal with that. And the idea of the appreciation of all people as part of the human family, of course, is a starting point that the Baha'i faith gave me. The idea that trial and error learning is an important part of the human condition, that God has designed humanity uh, to 
to live in a world of perfection in imperfection and that our imperfection is part of what makes the, gives us the potential to be noble and that by the ability to make mistakes, when we don't make mistakes, it becomes meritorious and that, that whole process has defined uh, my thinking in educational reform. The appreciation of the equality of men and women and the appreciation of taking into account issues in gender is another major issue. The whole notion that values is left out of most educational processes, the, the way that, that I talked about it in China uh, was that there are really two purposes of education, to make kids smart and to make them good. If you make them smart without making them good, you create a danger for society. Now, if you make them good without making them smart, at least they won't hurt anybody, but smart and good becomes light upon light, and that's almost a direct quote from the Baha'i writings. Uh, the purpose of education, making people both smart and good, is really the fundamental purpose of education. So it goes on and on. I've tried all of my life to center my professional and personal activities on the principles, the, the very rich principles that faith provides to ground us and give us confidence in terms of the directions that we're moving in. I was going to ask this question, but I think you already answered it, but maybe you can elaborate a little more. Very early on in the interview, you said that you had learned the lesson the hard way in regards to race, and I was curious about that statement. Growing up, I guess you said that it wasn't until you were older well, that... Well, I remember one very dramatic incident. I was the director of a program at the Baha'i Summer School at Geyserville, California, and one night we were standing around the campfire and I was leading the singing and I started singing a very uh, robust version of Dixie. And my good friend Adrian Reeves standing next to me gave me a huge poke in the ribs. <laughs> and I said, what's that for, Adrian? She says, some people don't like that song. I said, why? It's a nice song. Because my motives were relatively pure. I say relatively because I don't think anyone can claim to be completely unprejudiced, but I had never used race as a criteria for uh, dividing people. And that moment where I was probably almost 30 years old was the moment that I understood that it wasn't enough for me to simply worry about my own motivations but I had to take responsibility for how my actions were perceived by other people as well. And that was a, a very hard but a very potent lesson to learn. Dwight, you're retired now? Uh, officially retired, but <laughs> working more actively than during the last few years of my teaching. In, in retirement, my specialization has become uh, the development of more effective agricultural information, I'm working as principal consultant to the uh, Farmer Voice Radio project funded by the Gates Foundation in Africa. Uh, the, our pilot efforts are in Malawi and Kenya, soon to be expanded to Tanzania and other places. Uh, I chaired a multidisciplinary panel for the Gates Foundation to help them decide how to 
spend a considerable number of resources. And uh, that was what got me interested in the field of agriculture and to give me the confidence that perhaps I had something to contribute there. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Farmer Voice radio project? The extension programs all over the world are pretty much broken. Uh, In Malawi, you have one extension agent for more than a 1,000 farmers. If you stop to think about reaching farmers with any kind of effective information, the ratio of one to a 1,000 is pretty difficult, if not impossible, and in effect, why very little effective extension is completed. And so we're developing the concept of radio extension officer. And so the Ministry of of Agriculture in in Malawi, for example, has assigned a number of full-time extension agents or near-full-time extension agents to work with us. And the theory of the project is that by providing maybe as few as a dozen or 20 farmers with as near to ideal extension support as possible in terms of developing uh, approaches to new practices and improving their farming methodology, that if we can document that very, very carefully and share it with uh, other farmers via radio, giving them the opportunity for feedback via SMS and voicemail and establishing a research desk which will give us feedback from them and give them feedback from us where we find what the major questions are and give them support in answering them, that we think that we can perhaps improve the productivity of those farmers in a significant way. Have you been traveling to Africa in regards to this project? Yes. I go two or three or four times a year. I just got back from a five-week trip to Africa, and after I get back from Hong Kong in June, I will spend a little over two weeks in Africa again. I guess my final question, Dwight, is, is there something you haven't done that you still would like to do? Well, frankly, my daily prayer is let me be of service to everyone I meet, and when I can no longer be of service, let me die quickly. (laughs) I feel that I've been very blessed to have learned one of the great secrets of life, which is that the, as Abdu'l-Bahá, the, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, said that the highest thing to which any human being can aspire is to be of service to another human being. I have certainly found in my own life that that is the most rewarding aspect of life, is to be of service to your family and to your associates, in my case to my students, and the faculty I was able to train or help Im- help improve and now to try and serve the agricultural community and help them add new uh, opportunities, I find that to be the most rewarding thing possible, and I look forward to continuing to have new opportunities for service. I've, I've been enamored of the use of technology in the educational process from the time that I wrote the first doctoral dissertation at Stanford University to use a computer and develop the uh, computer-based scheduling program and a, a number of other technological 
interventions, including the uh, more recent wiki book, which was which is written online, of course. I think that so long as I'm given the opportunity to be of service, I will continue to do the best I can and continue to make lots of mistakes and try to learn from them as I help other people do the same. Well, Dwight, thank you very much for joining us on A Baha'i Perspective. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Dwight Allen, an educator who devoted his life to educational reform and innovation. He is co-author with Bill Cosby of the book, American Schools, The $100 Billion Challenge. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Well
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org. 